listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for October 18th, 2020, the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Justin Crisp. It's based on Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 21. As many of you know, two weeks ago, I was under the weather from what it turned out actually to be food poisoning. I'm much better now, and thank you so much for your notes of concern and for all of your prayers, really. Very, very dear to me. When I'm sick and I feel like I can't eat anything, I reach intuitively for televised comfort food, okay? TV comfort food. First on my list of which is old movies, and especially old musicals. So one afternoon, two weeks ago, I turned on one of my favorites, Hello, Dolly. It's fabulous and totally lighthearted and set in the days when Yonkers was a so-called hick town in the country. I mean, what's not to love about that? Anyway, I was struck this time through by one of the proverbs that Dolly recalls her late husband Ephraim saying, over and over and over. It's this. Money is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it's spread around, helping young things to grow. I just thought that was fabulous. Now, I have to admit, it's a little out of character for me. I'm not much for manure, as you all know. Manure is much more the the province of my sister, Olivia, who's a large animal vet on calf cattle ranches, and she's tuning in probably right now, hello Olivia, from South Dakota. I'm much more the kind of person who says things like province, uh, (laughs) rather than uh, being an expert on manure, like my sister, the connoisseur of manure, if you will. But I have to say, manure or not, it's one of the truest things I've ever heard about money. Because I think God is a manure spreader, and he made us to be manure spreaders too. In our gospel lesson this morning, some of Jesus' religious colleagues approach and pose a question to him. A question that they think, no matter how Jesus answers it, is going to get him into trouble. That's what the text means when it says they tried to entrap him. It's an impossible question to answer without making somebody mad. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not, they ask. And if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, well, then he's in hot, he's in hot water with the Romans. But if he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, then he's just alienated a whole swath of his fellow Jews who despise their Roman overlords. There's no way he can answer this question directly and not really alienate somebody and get himself into hot water. And so he, doesn't, he just doesn't answer it directly. Instead, he reframes the question. The question as posed to Jesus is whether it is religiously lawful to use money in this way, to pay taxes to the empire. 
And Jesus responds basically by saying that that is not the religious question at all. The question isn't religiously lawful to pay such and such is something like an attempt to engineer holiness artificially, as though Jesus could prescribe a ready-made financial formula, and we needed only to follow his counsel and write a check out to God for such and such an amount, as though Jesus were in the business of running one of those NPR-like fundraising campaigns and pledge drives. Jesus never gives us any such formula, never reduces the financial life to writing a check out to the Almighty. There's no neat set of yes, do thises and no, don't do thats that he gives us guaranteed to generate holiness in our financial lives. When asked point blank by people what they should do with their money, Jesus applies the spiritual scalpel, as it were, in a different way each time. He tells the rich young ruler, for instance, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor. Charging the rich young ruler basically to go and liquidate all his assets, all of them, and then give away the proceeds. But Jesus is satisfied, actually, when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, after having a conversion experience, as it were, agrees to give half of his possessions to the poor and to give back anything he had cheated anybody out of as a tax collector. That is, to repair any exploitation he had perpetrated against another in the course of his business at four times the amount, in fact. He has to repay it at four times the amount. Both tall orders, don't get me wrong, okay? Uh, I, uh, I am wildly uncomfortable with the idea of either giving up 100% of my possessions or 50% of my possessions, okay? So tall orders, but there's not a magic formula. That he gives different advice to the rich young ruler and to Zacchaeus. And the exact dollar amount doesn't seem to concern Jesus either. Recall that when Jesus observes the wealthy going into the temple and giving untold sums to the temple. He also observes a widow offering just two copper coins, the widow's might. And he extols the widow's generosity rather than the wealthy's, notwithstanding the fact that the wealthy, the dollar amount, as it were, was unbelievably higher than that of the widow's donation. But he extols the widow because, unlike the wealthy, the widow had given all that she had. And when Jesus' opponents this morning straight up ask him for a formula regarding taxation, should we pay it? Should we not? Should we fudge the numbers a little bit? Should we give all that we're required to, etc.? Jesus totally dodges that question, leaves it to the side, and takes instead the opportunity to cut money spiritually down to size. He asks for a coin, and he's given one. And he says, whose head is this? It's the emperor's, presumably Tiberius's. 
And Jesus says, Give then to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. As though the coin were a jacket with the name Emperor Tiberius sewn into the label, right? Well, okay, it's the emperor's. Well, give it back to the emperor. Fine. It almost seems as though Jesus is shrugging it off, but it's actually, I think, more profound than that. The word the NRSV translation translates head, as in Caesar's head, emperor's, the emperor's head on the coin, is actually broader, more general in the original Greek. The word Jesus uses is icon, which means image or likeness. As in, he holds up the coin and says, whose image or likeness is this? And in saying that it's the emperor's image and not God's on the coin, Jesus reminds his listeners, it reminds us, that money is not divine. It's not. Money is a human invention, a tool we use to organize our common life. Literally, in Jesus' case, it's a piece of metal <laughs> inscribed with a picture of Tiberius' head and his title. In our case these days, if your financial life is like mine, it's, you know, a piece of plastic <laughs> that I swipe or stick into a card machine or even just numbers on an app in, <laughs> you know, on my smartphone screen. Money is a resource, a finite one, and it's a symbol of resources and just that. It's a finite human thing. And money carries all of the promises and obligations that attend all such finite human things. From duck confit to cell phones to operas to football. Okay? They're capable of being used well when they go with the grain of the image or the icon of God in us and are being used poorly when they go against the grain of the image or the icon of God in us. Beyond Jesus' clear and unequivocal concern for the well-being of those who live in poverty and destitution, it seems to me that Jesus thought about money less in terms of particular budget lines and more in terms of the way that it reflects the overall shape and posture of one's life as a whole. The question Jesus seems really interested in, which he puts before each of us, I think, this morning, is what do our financial lives say about us? Money itself, the dollars and coins in our pockets, or I suppose by extension, the numbers on my cell phone screen, Money itself bears merely the image of the state. Or in the case of Americans, it <laughs> literally is inscribed with the Federal Reserve Bank. The question is how much the way we use our money bears his image, the image of Christ, who is himself the image and icon of the invisible God. 
As we profess each week in the Creed, God is not just one, but three in one. A perpetual movement of self-gift, which constitutes God's own life. As the Father gives all that the Father has and is to the Son. And then the Father with the Son gives all that they have and are to the Spirit. And the Spirit with the Son giving all that they have and are to the Father in thanksgiving. The being of God is gift and offering and sharing all the way down. That's what it means for God to be God. That's what the fourth century theologians who wrote the creed were trying to describe. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh, the incarnate Son, we see what that divine life of perpetual gift, that divine flow, as it were, looks like in human form. And we carve out the image of that divine flow, that image of God in each of us, by imaging the image, as it were, the image which Jesus is. If that makes your head spin, the takeaway is very simple. It's just that in our financial lives, as in every other part of our lives, we flourish and thrive when we look like Jesus. And Jesus was a human translation of that divine mode of being, that divine flow with money, as with everything else. God being maxime liberalis, as St. Thomas Aquinas puts it, maximally free-handed in everything, always offering, always sharing, always giving. And Jesus was like this, with money, as with everything else, whether he was celebrating the widow's might or counseling his disciples to give their cloaks also to any who take their tunics or praising Zacchaeus' spiritual breakthrough in repairing his exploitation and giving massively from his heart. We flourish when we give to others of what has been given to us, not just by God, but simultaneously by human others. And this, I hazard, is actually true at every level of our financial lives. When capital flows justly and generously between individuals and organizations and even nations, it was Adam Smith, after all, the, the great 18th century philosopher and theorist of capitalism, who observed that the most mysterious thing about the markets is the fact that they insert each and every one of us into relationship with really an innumerable host of other human beings. Adam Smith thought this was the coolest thing about the markets, the fact that they put us in relationship with other people, people we'd never even met, people we would never even meet. Relationships, in fact, of dependence. We would depend on all of these other people. As I depended this morning on the craftsmen in Wisconsin who made my shoes and the tailors in England who sewed my clergy shirt, 
and the farmers in Brazil and India who harvested my espresso beans, and the factory workers in China who made my espresso machine, and the engineers in Switzerland and Italy who actually designed it, and on and on and on and on. It's dizzying, really, if you think about it. If you just take a moment to think, okay, if I take this cross-section, this instance in time, and think about all the other people I am dependent on because of my financial life in just this moment. It's basically incalculable in the end, especially given how complex our banking systems have become. Now, sinners as we are, those relationships are often unbelievably imperfect, okay? I, I get that. I get that. They're often downright exploitative, those relationships. And so they require political and economic care and attention. But the idea of the market itself approximates what Smith goes on to call a society of perfect love. That's why he thinks it's so unbelievably cool. A society of perfect love in which each gives to the other of what they have and are in complex networks of exchange that can steer even sinful self-interest towards the benefit of all. The upbuilding of the wealth of nations, as he would put it. Now I'm interested, yeah, way interested actually, in the question of how and by what means our financial markets can better and by increasing degrees approximate the society of perfect love which Smith himself imagines. But I don't think Jesus would let us let ourselves off the personal hook by focusing only on that macroeconomic conversation. Jesus poses to each of us a personal and individual question. If we want a spiritual breakthrough in our financial lives, we need to give up the search for a formula. We need to give up the search for a line item, one of them, in our budget that will solve the whole thing. And we need to zoom out and take a look at our financial life as a whole and consider the flow, as it were. What's coming in and what's going out and where and to what extent does the flow look like Jesus? And by looking like Jesus, look like God. The God whose very being is justice and generosity. See, that's the secret that the widow knows. The secret that Zacchaeus discovers. The lesson that Jesus tries to teach the rich young ruler and the point which Jesus' questioners this morning don't even realize they've missed. That money is just like everything else in life. It's like manure. It's not worth the thing unless it's being spread around. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.